following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. What are you doing? What are you doing? So many different ways to ask that question. But I reckon it's a question that uh, Hannah would have asked God in her prayers when he, she walked into the tabernacle in Shiloh. Reuben preached on 1 Samuel beautifully last week. If you didn't hear it, please go to the, uh, to the Shore app or to the website and download that message. He preached it, an amazing story of, of desperation and challenge and and he was kind, and he was sensitive, and it was well thought out, and it sets us up to explore the rest of 1 Samuel that we're going to do over the next several weeks. Reuben also said twice in last week's message, suck it up, buttercup. Did you guys hear that? Twice last week he said that, so you know it's a sermon worth listening to again. In all my years of hearing Reuben preach, I don't think I've ever heard him say that in a sermon, but he did. The whole passage so far in 1 Samuel has some humdingers in it. One translation says of Hannah and Elkanah, and so they left Samuel in Shiloh. That, that's the statement. Followed by, and Eli's sons were scoundrels. They left their toddler with scoundrels? What kind of parents were these? I'll try to not assume that we all share a vast knowledge of the era and the events and everything that was happening there. And if anything does come up in this message that you'd like to, to chat about or, or know a little bit more about, you can come up afterwards and, and we'll talk about it. Not that I've got it all nailed, but I, I have applied myself a little bit this week. What are you doing? It isn't exactly in the passage that we're going to look at. But it's kind of what I read between the lines that maybe this distressed woman, Hannah, might have said. Reuben referred to her as a hero of the faith last week. Compared to other schemers and deceivers throughout the Old Testament, Hannah is impeccable. She's an amazing woman. Are there any Hannahs here today? Hannahs or Hannahs? Either way, you can say it either way you want. Yeah, good. Any Scoundrels? No, we don't want to know. Um, Hannah was impeccable. She was faithful both in having a deep faith, but also in being deeply faithful to her vow that she made to God. And she was grateful, both returning praise to God, but also in returning the son, just as she had promised. Now, the context of this particular season in the people of Israel's history is that the Philistines were rising in strength, and so that was a significant external threat. But then there were deeper threats coming from within, and that was going to have in internal collapses that were just going to be a mess. The erratic nature of the judges' political leadership had created a situation in which everybody was just doing what was right in their own eyes. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where everybody was just making it up as they went along? Mm. And then... The priests, at least some of them, had become corrupt. So this is the context. 
into which baby Samuel is born. Political, moral, religious leadership is all in disarray. Israel might not survive this generation. This is a story of a woman with no son and a people with no future. Now, in Hannah's specific context, when all she wanted was a baby who would erase her shame and silence her tormentor and allow her to fit properly into society, when she still didn't know how this was all going to go, she might have asked, what are you doing? In her case, by closing her womb. Have you ever asked God a question like that? What are you doing? It's not a bad question. And it's not necessarily accusatory or a complaint. It's a good question if it assumes that God is doing something and you'd really like to know so that you can be in on it rather than frustrated or overlooked or feeling left out. So it's it's a good question. Now, I'm more of a Bible teacher than a preacher. I'm more of a discipler. I mean, I'm the kind of person that, you know, prints out the text and writes all over it and does all these kinds of things, and nobody can preach from something like this, right? It's just a mess. So, so let me give you an insight into to how I approach some, some of the scriptures. I'm a discipler, and so when I read scripture, I try to do a few things. Almost every time, I, I see which one of these might fit. I ask questions of the text. I wonder what was going on at the time. I wonder what was going on in that place. Other things that were happening that might impact on that particular story. I try on different lenses. I imagine, or maybe we should imagine, reading this passage as a person with a long-term condition that disempowers them. Whatever that might look like. Or someone who's marginalized somehow. If we read this passage we're about to go into. Think about it through the lens of somebody who's long time unemployed. Somebody who's sometimes desperate to know which bill to pay first. Rather than reading it through my own lenses, sometimes those kinds of things enlighten the passage more. I look for parallels and contrasts and repetition. Sometimes those will bring out something. And of course, I want to read the passage as the story of the people who lived in a particular place in a particular time in history. So let's enter into this passage and see what it looks like to be human, to understand what was going on for the people involved. Elkanah, Hannah, Eli, Samuel, some of the others. What's going on with Panina? Some of you remember Reuben talking about Panina last week? Panina the bully? Yeah. And you know, a couple weeks ago, I met a woman named Panina. And I didn't say, oh, you're in the Bible. (laughs) No. No, hopefully. Yeah, anyway. Panina, Elkanah's other wife. What made her such a bully? I don't know, but it's a good question to ask rather than just labeling her and dismissing her. What, What was going on for her? Well, she was one of two wives. And Elkanah was showing favoritism, so that doesn't set them up to succeed, does it? Essentially a good man, Elkanah's fakapapa is listed at the beginning of this passage, so it demonstrates that he was a man of high social standing. He had ancestors, a past, ancestors worth noting. But what about a present and a future in children from Hannah? 
That was Hannah's anguish. Because the role of a woman in this time was largely to carry children. What was going on for Eli, the priest? Oh, man. He had scoundrels for sons. That's what the scripture says. I'm not, I'm not casting dispersions. That's what the Bible says. Because of them, Eli recognized drunkenness more than prayerfulness. And he falsely accused Hannah of being drunk when she was praying. They were embezzling sacrifices that were made in the tabernacle. They were gluttons. His house was in total disarray, and he seemed powerless to fix it. He sat and let the evil happen all around him. He'll be called out on it later. Called out on the fact that he honors his sons above God. In sharp contrast to God's faithfulness throughout this story and Hannah's faithfulness, we see Eli's unfaithfulness. Not a stellar example of Israel's priesthood. Eli was a flawed human. I take great comfort in knowing that God works through flawed humans that we read about in Scripture and that those stories are included too. Eli was likely depressed over his rebellious sons and his own troubles. But, as Reuben pointed out last week, he did see Hannah and he blessed her. And so we'll give him that, right? And then we have Samuel. Samuel, whose name Shmuel, sounds like heard by God in Hebrew. Shmuel. He was a much wanted and a much prayed for baby boy. Dedicated from before conception to serve God forever. To be the bridge for the nation of Israel. A bridge between the period of the judges and the monarchy when Israel would appoint their first king. So at this point, there was no king in Israel. Samuel is pivotal to the whole story of God's unfolding plan for Israel. So the timing of his birth really mattered. When God closed Hannah's womb, he wasn't just being a flippant puppet master saying, yeah, not. Her anguish was not unseen by God. It mattered. It mattered greatly. And yet the sovereignty of God and his even bigger purposes matter more. And that's true today, too. God is at work. And his purposes matter more than sometimes just what I see going on in my little sphere. Sovereignty, having supreme power or authority, or in our case, an all-seeing, compassionate, merciful God with a plan much bigger than any one of us. I have to dwell on that. Those of you who know me and you know my personality... Mm. Jesus has done a good job. <laughs> My ego-bound experience sometimes forgets the scope and the scale of God's intentions and attentions. I'm just focused on how circumstances affect me now. God's plan is huge. Yet he includes us in it. He includes me in it. Just not as the leading character I sometimes imagine myself to be. I'm definitely still part of God's story. As part of God's story, Samuel will play a huge role as the last and greatest judge of Israel and as a prophet and a kingmaker. Yahweh stands at the center of each of the scenes that unfolds in 1 Samuel and 2. First and 2 chapters of 1 Samuel. It's confusing because there's 1 and 2 Samuel too. The Lord had closed Hannah's womb. 
God of Israel, grant your, grant your petition, Eli had said. And the Lord remembered her. And then in today's passage, the Lord has granted my petition, Hannah prays. Throughout her prayer, Hannah speaks of and describes a God who is more than capable. Watch for it when Christina comes up to read the passage. She barely refers to Samuel. It's all about God, her deliverer, the one who hears her, the God who sees her, the God who reverses fortunes and flips the narrative, the God of the powerless, the hungry, the childless, and the poor. Christina is going to limp up here as a brave person and read the passage for us today. But as she does, let's consider the situation and then the song. And let's listen for references to those who might be trusting in the wrong things. Do you need a hand? Let's listen for those who might be trusting in the wrong things and how that's going to go for them. And then let's see God's story as our larger context and plot, right? We are in this story somehow, albeit a bit later down in the timeline. All right, cool. You need a microphone. When the man Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, after the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. Do what seems best to you, Elkanah, her husband told her. Stay here until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. After he was weaned, she took the boy with her young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. When they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the boy to Eli, and she said to him, As surely as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord. For his whole life he will be given over to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Joel says this next part, verses 1 to 10, are as much a song as a prayer and are not to be mumbled or overlooked, so they're to be read with a bit of oomph. Here we go. Praying with <laughs> Hannah with a bit of ex her exuberance. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In, in the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry hunger no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord. Upon them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked will be silenced in darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. 
He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were wicked men. They had no regard for the Lord. Wow. Well done. She didn't have a, a twisted ankle when she said yes, that she would do this, but she's a champ. So, Right, let's go back and look at the passage just, um, just quickly. We're not going to tease out everything like we would if we were in a Bible study, but there are a few things that I want us to point out. So in verse 21, Elkanah went up with his family to fulfill his vow. So the fact that Hannah had made a vow was not uncommon. Elkanah also had a vow, and he went up to fulfill his, and then he challenged his wife in due time to go and, and fulfill hers. And then in verse 24, she took the boy with her, young as he was. Can a mother or a grandmother help me out here? When is a baby usually weaned? Carla? Because <laughs> Up to three years. So 18 months? To three years? Eleanor? Oh, even longer. All right. Well, as a non-mother or an unmother, what do we say? Um, it could have been any of that. It could have been any of that stretch of time. So young as he was, a toddler, she took him up. Who knows what mothering he might get in Shiloh with Eli and his scoundrel sons? So maybe she wanted to get him, give him a really, really good start. She wanted to love up on him, you know, in these early years. And then she left him there. Okay. And then she saw Eli, right? So in verse 26, she says, pardon me, my Lord. I'm the woman who stood before you, you know, these years ago. Remember me? I would have said, I'm the one you falsely accused of being drunk. We don't find that in scripture. She's a good woman. And then in verse Chapter 2, verse 1, Hannah prayed. She prayed with confidence and with gratitude. And she speaks of, my horn is lifted high. Dignity, victory, validation. This is a, a warrior, king kind of a, of a symbol. That her horn, the Lord, in the Lord, my horn is lifted high. And then in verse 2 of chapter 2, there is no rock like our God. Refuge. The rock is a refuge. God is incomparable. He's sovereign. There's no one like him. And then in verse 3, I don't know if she's talking to me or not. Do not keep talking so proudly, <laughs> so abundantly, so much. Or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For these little words sometimes in Scripture, remember I'm more of a teacher than a preacher. These little words in Scripture often are pivotal. They mean everything in the passage. So the first part or let your mouth speak such arrogance for because the Lord is a God who knows. God knows. And by him, deeds are weighed, examined, measured, counted, checked. In the next few verses, verses 4 and 5, it's all passive verbs, things that are going to happen. And then in 6 through 8, it's active verbs, things that God is actually going to do. And in verses 4 and 5, we see those contrasts between the warriors who are strong and those who are stumbled, between those who were hungry and now are fed, between those who had no children and now those who have heaps. It's a contrast. Everything is flipped in this passage. And then six, the Lord brings death. 
and makes alive. He brings down and he raises up. There are passages like this in Isaiah, in Matthew, in Colossians that also speak to these same themes. And I love interpreting any one scripture with scriptures elsewhere that we find because all of the Bible informs and interprets all of the Bible. And so it's good to read it in that bigger context. He raises the poor from the dust in verse 8, and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He lifts the needy from the ash heap, and he sets them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. Have you ever shown up to an event and you felt slightly underdressed? In this case, these guys who had been out in the dump and in the ash heap are all of a sudden brought in and seated with the princes. Move over, princes. It's going to get crowdy here. Because all of these are going to come and join you. Everything's getting flipped now. And when I first read this, I thought, is God capricious? Is he just, is he just like flipping switches and doing, you know, whatever he wants on a g-? The more I've read it, the more I've looked into it, none of this is random. Our God is very purposeful. And all of this is to bring equity from those who were way up too high and self-sufficient And those who are way down low, of no reason of their own, it brings equity. And then, have any of you read the book, The Pillars of the Earth? Do you know that that title comes from this passage? For the foundations of the earth are the Lord. Some translations will say pillars of the earth. Cosmic foundations below the social realities, deep structure. David, could you bring my... My drink bottle for me, please. (coughs) I was hoping this wasn't going to happen. Thanks, David. Appreciate it. Um, The cosmic foundations. Imagine the engineering report on something so amazing as the foundations of the earth. (coughs) Mm. That's what happens when I get too excited. Um... And then in verse 10, again, those who oppose the Lord, the arrogant, and then the Lord, the most high, he will thunder, the Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Are you getting a sense of who Hannah's God was? This is a big God. And there were no limits to the ends of the earth. And then an amazing thing, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But remember, Israel doesn't yet have a king. Oh, so is this... A prayer? Is this a song? Is this a poem? Or is this a prophecy? Hmm. Then Elkanah, they, his caravan, their their household, went home to Ramah. But the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. They went home without Samuel. I know, they told us that in the beginning, but it still is a bit unnerving to me. But God's agenda came before Elkanah and Hannah's agenda. And they put... They put God first. And then Eli's sons were scoundrels. I told you they were dodgy. They're called sons of worthlessness. And this is in contrast to Elkanah and Hannah's household of faithfulness. And yet the priest's household wasn't faithful at all. Right? Now this is where the pivot comes in. Truly, this is a pivotal time for Israel. Everything is about to change. Remember the priesthood under Eli was a mess and they didn't yet have a king and Samuel was, was born and Israel was about to be reborn. 
The birth wasn't only for Elkanah and Hannah, but it was also for Israel because he was going to serve them. While Hannah was desperately seeking a child, God was diligently seeking a new priest and prophet to replace Eli. All this is going on. And Hannah can't help but sing. And that's the song that Christina read for us. In her song, there is praise. There's also an extensive description of the reversal of fortunes that's coming. Is it a prayer? Is it a prophecy? Is it a poem? Is it a song? Whatever category it falls into, it is rich. And it is raw. And it is real. And it comes from the mouth of a woman who had journeyed with God through desperation. Desperation is not a word to be rushed through. Hannah's prayer of praise here mirrors David's psalm at the end of 2 Samuel, like a bookend to 1 and 2 Samuel. So we've got hermeneutical structure. And also we might think of Mary's prayer of acceptance when God said, you're going to be the mother of Jesus. So think of Luke chapter 1 and the Magnificat later on. She submitted to the sovereignty of God as Hannah did. Like Hannah, both Mary and her cousin Elizabeth miraculously conceived, bore sons, Jesus, John the Baptist, and then gave them over fully to the service of God. Nothing withheld for themselves by these godly women. They were just playing their part in God's huge purposes. They were each surprised by God. Have you ever had an angel like just come and show up in the garden? No. They were surprised by God. They were blessed. They were grateful. And then each of these women sacrificed hugely. They didn't consider their children as rewards they deserved, but as gifts from God for his own purposes. So this abandon is described in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. Um, I just love bringing some of my favorite verses into things, and, and this, is, this is one. It speaks of what is normal for Christ followers. Ready? So this is the norm. For none of us lives for ourselves alone, and none of us dies for ourselves alone. If we live, we live for the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and return to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. Now remember I said that I put on different lenses when I approach scripture and I try to see what's going on in the passage. I wonder about the women's posture when they prayed or when they heard from an angel. I mean, what would your posture be if an angel showed up? You know, every time an angel shows up in scripture, what do they say? Don't be afraid. I mean, imagine the social anxiety that the angels would have when everybody freaked out every time they showed up. But I wonder about these women's posture when they prayed or heard from the angel. When Hannah was first praying such a raw prayer, appealing for a baby, was she kneeling? I don't know. The text suggests that she'd lost all restraint. She was pouring her soul out before God. And later, when she took Samuel to the tabernacle and worshiped there, what was her posture? What were her hands, how were her hands involved? 
you know, in her prayer? I don't know. But I feel like this woman is all in. She prays with her whole being. Maybe initially in the tabernacle, her fist was pounding on the floor. I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe just open. Open to receive from God. And then also, she kept them open to be able to give Samuel back to God. In Zimbabwe, when we received gifts, I don't know if I did it, David, when you handed me my drink bottle. In Zimbabwe, when we receive gifts, we receive with two hands. It's a sign of respect. It's a passive acceptance of whatever is placed in them. Hannah seems to demonstrate a posture of open hands, both to receive and to give, not grasping, not to hold on to. Now, when I first read about Hannah in the first chapter, I really looked at her and I thought she was a victim. I looked at it through justice eyes. She could have worn the title of victim. She was bullied, scorned, falsely accused of being a drunkard. There were domestic, social, spiritual stresses on her. But instead, Hannah is the chooser, the prayer, the worshiper, the truster, a hero of the faith. In all her interactions, she knew her own mind and her own heart, and she chose her own responses and actions in each of these situations. And so, Hannah sings. Her song may be like what happens to us sometimes when the Holy Spirit brings a song or a scripture to mind. Every song we sing isn't original every Sunday, right? Our worship team is good, but they don't write this stuff every week. Our worship here at Shore is carefully curated with scripture and singing and prayer. Hannah's song may very well have come from a collection of Israel's hymns, and it was appropriate to the occasion. We can look in Psalm 113, and it shares the language of reversal that we hear in Hannah's song and in Mary's Magnificat, the lifting of the poor, the weak, the needy. We see this emphasis throughout Jesus' teachings too. Did you, do you see the reversal of fortunes that I'm talking about? God will, and in fact is, putting things right. Many of the Psalms refer to this, and it all culminates in Jesus' great reversal of death in his resurrection. This story and Hannah's song emphasize that God is attentive to those who have been left on the margins, the displaced, the disadvantaged. Those who've been left out will have a seat at the table with the princes. Usually the mighty are full and fruitful and dominant, and there are reasons for that, right? But Yahweh takes notice. Inequity and exploitation cannot stand. What the world regards as normal is under scrutiny. He is a God who hears. Again, this is so much more than just about Samuel and one little baby. This song anticipates and announces a reorder of the social reality. Think about those who didn't know where their next meal was coming from. Now they'll eat. Those who were comfy, maybe not so much anymore. We serve a God who intrudes. We serve a God who intercedes. We serve a God who inverts. A God who flips the narrative. The song is a prophecy about what's about to happen in the rest of 1 Samuel. Eli's gluttonous sons who hold powerful positions, they will be brought down. 
King Saul will be raised up, and then when his heart turns against God, he will be brought down. David, you guys have heard of King David? The eighth son, a minor extra in the family, he will be raised up as a king. Normally, it's firstborn sons who get to do those things. God's flipping everything. So stay along for the ride. And then King David, the minor son in that family, he was a precursor to Jesus, a humble carpenter's, carpenter's son from a useful village, useless village, sorry, a useless village of Nazareth. He will also be raised up. The powerful, the content, the well-fed, the wicked like Penina and Eli, self-sufficient, doing things in their own strength. I wonder, I don't know, but I wonder, do you think they prayed with abandon? Do you think they prayed like Hannah, who was so aware of her need that she sought God? For sometimes when I'm so comfortable, I get complacent and I don't pray like that. Do you think they pray with abandon? Do you think they're aware of their greatest needs? Some of us actually are aware of our needs in here today. I look around this room and unfortunately there there are several people I don't know and I don't know your story. But for many others of you, I do know your story. We each have one. Some of us are acutely aware of our needs today. Some of us are wealthy. And yet we'd have given every last cent to erase that diagnosis. We'd give every last cent to redeem a marriage. We'd give every last cent to bring a loved one out of addiction. Most of us, humans, we know what it's like to be helpless to some degree. I don't like to dwell on that too much. I like to be an overcomer. And yet, I'm never closer to God than when I'm broken. But I don't like to stay there. It's not comfortable. If you know, you know, right? Have you ever been talking to someone, maybe speaking to some of the younger ones on this side, there's others scattered around. Have you ever been talking with someone or to someone and they've been more engrossed in their phone than in listening to you? Yeah? How do you feel, how do you feel when that happens? I feel embarrassed, I feel diminished, I feel frustrated, I feel disrespected and unimportant because they... Praise God, we don't follow a God who's like that. God will never have his nose more in his phone or on the television or whatever else is going on. He is attentive. He is accessible. He is not deaf to our prayers, whether they are uttered or unuttered. He is willing. God hears. And that's the whole point, really, of Hannah's story. Hannah's God is our God. 
And I dare say my prayers could be a bit more like hers, less polite, less tentative, less, more authentic. Do you only pray polite prayers? Maybe when other people are listening, but when nobody else is listening, don't worry about it. Many books have been written about how to pray. Religions systematize and complicate such things as prayer. But to be human is to pray, to seek meaning, purpose, hope, is to pray. Whether it starts with a dear God or is punctuated with an amen, that doesn't even matter. To seek God's face, to look up, to reach beyond ourselves to he who is greater, to he who is capable. That's what it means to pray. And it's okay to borrow prayers. If you can't find one that quite suits whatever's going on with you, you can borrow a prayer. Hannah did. We think that she borrowed this prayer. Here's one I've borrowed. Bless those who mourn the death of a loved one or of a dream and feel that with this loss their lives are incomplete. Bless those who mourn and fill these empty hearts with pleasant moments, the sound of laughter, sunshine, happier days. Bless those who mourn and heal their brokenness with the soothing balm of your gentle touch, that they might know shalom, wholeness, peace, that they might know that you hear them, see them, that you're with them in their particular circumstances today. Is that a good prayer? Yeah, I borrowed that one. You don't have to pray politely. And you don't have to knock before you come into the presence of God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. I'm going to read the whole passage, but the most important little bit, I think, is going to be up on the screen. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us in our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. And yet he did not sin. And then get this, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence, boldly, like Hannah did, so that we might receive mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Do you do that? Do you strut humbly? Anybody want to demonstrate that for us? To strut like you know you belong, like it's your right to be there? You can strut right up into the presence of God. This scripture gives you permission. Can I challenge you to pray audaciously, knowing God hears you, that he leans in, that he listens, that he loves you right now? Can you picture God, picture him leaning in Maybe he's got his elbow on the edge of his throne. I don't know. And he's listening for your voice. He's aware of you and what's going on in your world. The sovereign God sees you. He really does. 
We have to believe that. The whole Bible tells us that. Who among us here today is down? Who among us today feels a bit powerless in our circumstances? Pain, grief, disappointment, illness. These things can have an ever-expanding influence over every area of our life. It can be overwhelming. Pray outrageously. Pray audaciously with abandon. And you will be comforted as Hannah was. Resolved in her heart, knowing her God, the God who is worthy of all praise, almighty, holy, incomparable, and that God remembered, looked down upon her and heard her prayer. He is both. He is big and he is near. He's attentive and gracious. Since he did not spare even his own son, Romans 8.32 says, but gave him up for us all, won't he also give us everything else? What do you want from the Spirit? What realignment of your heart is needed? What blessing do you need today? Bring that need, that thing that comes to the surface. Bring that need to Jesus as we remember the covenant that he made when he rescued us. I'm going to read a passage that you might think is familiar. So I'm going to read it three times because it's all too easy to skip over some of the best bits. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Does this resonate with the story we've just been hearing about from Hannah? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Another translation. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. How about the message? Look for the parallels with Hannah and Samuel here. This is how much God loved the world. He gave his son, his one and only son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go into all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help put the world right again, as he always intended it to be. Jesus came to live amongst us to know and understand what it is to be human. In Jesus, God leaned down, listened, and loved us sacrificially. Everything else is meaningless. Everything else. So we, kind of like Hannah, come on Sundays and we sing and we worship in gratitude and celebration. 
We sing and worship in celebration and gratitude for our redemption in Christ. And Jesus said we should do this when we gather around remembering him. And we do it in a, in a kind of an informal way by meeting with each other around the tables here in the corners of, of the room. And we hold, together we hold the symbols of Christ in our hands. And then we eat after a moment of prayerful reflection. And it's a way of reminding ourselves that our God came. He came near. And he didn't leave us alone, but he left us with the Holy Spirit. And he left us with the church. And he left us with each other. So that we can love. And we can pray. And we can be stronger together. And so let me pray for us. Let me pray for us now. Pray with me. Oh Lord, in your perfect timing, Samuel became a prophet that you used to turn hearts toward you. What is in my hands that truly belongs to you and could be a blessing to others for generations to come? Grow me up, Lord God, in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and to be increasingly transformed into his image and likeness in every sphere of my life. To not hold tightly onto things that are better surrendered to you. Lord God, let Philippians 2 be my prayer. That I will do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard you and others as more important than myself. Not merely looking out for my own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Let me have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who, although he existed with you before creation, did not regard equality with you a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And for this reason also you highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to your glory, God, Father God. And this we remember as we gather around your table, remembering Jesus' broken body his spilt blood, grateful for the redemption, the restoration, and the righteousness we have because of him. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.